Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up, president of the Mediators Foundation, Mark Gerzon, on his new book, The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. He'll be in Hartford to discuss this issue at a leadership conference. But first, Yukon sociologist Noel Kazanev says more direct language is needed to address systemic racism in America. His new book is called Conceptualizing Racism, Breaking the Chains of Racially Accommodative Language. He's not satisfied with how President Obama has led on issues of race. In fact, he's not a fan of terms like issues of race when what we're really talking about is white racism. Professor Noel Kazanif, welcome back to Where We Live. It's good to be here. First of all, explain what you mean by racially accommodative language. I mean language that is supportive of the racial status quo, language that um, accept- is acceptable to people who really don't want to change things uh, racially, people who want to uh, uh, obfuscate and, 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 and um, not speak directly and, and explicitly about racism or racial oppression. Could, could you give me an ex, uh, maybe a quick example of that so we understand what you're talking about? Uh, yes. Um, within sociology, there's a tendency of people to talk about race. I had a colleague who uh, not long ago mentioned to me that, well, I talked about race in my class. I had no idea of what he was talking about, Uh, whether he was talking about race as a social construction or an ideological construction or whether he was talking about uh, the racial, um, assumed racial characteristics of of certain people. Um, And it is rare that we are... Uh, encouraged to use explicit language. Like if you're talking about, for example, racial oppression, why not say so? If you're talking about people who are racially oppressed, why not say racially oppressed people? Why say minorities? Oftentimes people talk about the race issue. And the question that comes to my mind is, what is the race issue? And why is race an issue? When you say that something is an issue, it means that there is something that needs to be settled. So what needs to be settled? So those are examples of what I mean by um, racially accommodative language. So, and, and essentially, your argument is that the words that we use really do matter. Um, this is this is something that I've explored quite a bit on my program because I really do feel like words matter. We've done uh, programs recently, and, and we'll be playing some tape in, in just a moment from a show I did recently about the so-called N word. Uh, but we also, you know, talk about everything from. Um, uh, genocide to uh, to racism and why these words actually have power to you, sir. Wh- why do the words that we use matter so much? Well, racism is a highly organized system of race based or race justified oppression. Systems of oppressions are held together by various ideologies that justify them. Ideologies are comprised of language. And language uh, consists of words. So it really does matter whether we use the word 
race or racism, whether we use the word black or African-American, whether we use the word racially oppressed or minority groups. Words matter uh, because words tend to construct and maintain systems of oppression, and words can be used to challenge and to dismantle those systems of oppression. There can there can be reasons why, from a sociological perspective, I assume a, an economic perspective, someone might refer to minority groups and not uh, racially uh, oppressed groups. Can you talk about a distinction like that, depending on what exactly it is you're studying within within some of these distinctions? Well, actually, there are no reasons why now. Uh, the, the, the term minority group has a very strange history. Uh, and basically, I think that when social scientists talk about minority groups today, we, we, we have to begin explaining to our students what a minority group is not. That, for example, in South Africa, you can have the numerical majority actually constitute the minority group. That's not a good way to define things. Um, the reason that we use the, the, the term minority group is used so commonly in social science is that it tends to dislocate um, the people who benefit from racism from any location within the social structure, and it keeps the focus on the victims of racial oppression. That is the minorities. When we look at the concept of minority uh, groups, and I do so in my book, we find that there is no good social science reason to maintain that term. That term has been thoroughly uh, discredited. It has no conceptual precision. Uh, it is uh, a term that... Um, it's offensive to a lot of people because it really doesn't characterize who they are and what they are about. But we persist on, um, on, on using it because I think it's, it's a racism evasive term because it takes the focus off of the people who benefit from racial oppression. For example, we use the term uh, minorities, but we don't use the term majorities very much. Um, so I think it's much more honest to talk about oppression, to talk about um, oppressed people and to specify the nature of the oppression. Racially oppressed people, gender oppressed people, class oppressed people. That's an, a more honest and forthcoming uh, type of language. Why do you think we do this as a society? What, why, do we, why do we use these sort of amorphous terms that don't mean anything as opposed to the more clear terms that, that, that point to the very specific things that you're talking about? Because there's a conflict of American ideals. We had um, a sociologist by the name of Robin Williams who identified, I think maybe 15 or maybe it was 16, um, key American values. And we have values like individualism and egalitarianism. Uh, but we also have a value that suggests that certain groups are superior to other groups. So, and racism would uh, fall into that category. So in the United States, which claims to be a democracy, and claims to be an egalitarian society, the idea that someone is uh, benefiting from racial privilege is something that's, that's very difficult to phantom uh, as a part of the, 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 uh, what we want people to think about our nation and, and our cherished values. Also for the individual, for the European-American individual, it, most people want to be able to think that what they got in life they've earned through their own hard work and merit. Uh, they don't want to think that they benefited from racial or other forms of privilege. So there's this strong psychological um, 
need to, to deny, to deny that racism exists. And racism is very much like a virus. The more uh, that you don't uh, shed light on it, it, it grows. Uh, and it works quite well in an, in an atmosphere of, of denial. You, you've written about and you've, you've taught something uh, called white racism. It's a, a very explicit term. So tell us about that term and why you think it's important. White racism is a term that's important because it locates the key actors in racism centrally in the analysis. Um, when you look at most sociology courses, they don't have titles like white racism. They have titles like minorities, the sociology of minority groups. And so we, the, the emphasis is on uh, the behavior of minorities as if that is the problem. In sociology, that used to be referred to as the Negro problem. See, the nation never had a problem. We did not have a white problem. We had a Negro problem. So that is another example of the fact that people who have power um, can use language to either focus on or to direct attention away from whatever they don't want to focus on for whatever reason they don't want to focus on it. And that brings us to to the notion of of Black Lives Matter and how that movement has uh, has taken hold across America, how it is misunderstood by many people, and how it has gotten us into what seems to be a linguistic debate about well, Black Lives Matter, sure, but but all lives matter, don't they? Talk about Black Lives Matter in in the context that 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 you explore here. Yes, I wrote. Uh a piece about that in Racism Review. And I noted that at my own university, University of Connecticut, a group of very progressive students painted on a, on a rock, spirit rock, which is there for that purpose, for student expression, um, racism at UConn and Black Lives Matter. And the next day, someone literally painted over it so that um, uh, they, they removed racism at UConn the word racism, because they, they didn't feel comfortable with that. They painted over that, and they uh, painted over the word black. So this was a part of this uh, white, uh, uh, all lives matter uh, backlash, which has, interestingly enough, now among white supremacist groups has morphed into a white lives matter movement. But that's, that's another story. So um, I, I wrote about that, and, 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 I, and I said that... Um, Again, we have a situation where African-Americans are saying that we are in pain. We are hurting. We need to be heard. Uh, Our young people are being killed like there's open season on them by police and vigilantes out there. Uh, And that black lives matter. And it's like we are now being shouted down uh, by people who are saying, all lives matter. And it's, it's another uh, um, way of changing the subject, of distracting uh, from what African-Americans are trying to focus on. So the, 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 the phrase all lives matter is, is another example of linguistic racial com- uh, accommodation. And the phrase black lives matter and the insistence that uh, it remained that way is an example of ling- the linguistic racial confrontation that is necessary for us to have an honest discussion about systemic racism in American society today. That's UConn sociology professor Noel Kazanave. 
We'll hear more from him on his book, Conceptualizing Racism, after the break, including why he feels the current state of the presidential race is actually helpful for our national dialogue on race. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, Mark Gerzon talks about how we can bridge the partisan divide in America. But right now, UConn sociologist Noel Kazanave thinks that words matter, and we're not having an honest conversation about race in America. It's the topic of his new book, Conceptualizing Racism, Breaking the Chains of Racially Accommodative Language. Getting back to the the Black Lives Matter movement, this is something that's really only a a few years old. It dates back to to George Zimmerman and the killing of Trayvon Martin. But it's obviously picked up so much um, emphasis and steam over the course of the last few years as we've seen this series of killings of mostly young black men by uh, police officers nationwide. Do, do you think that this is the sort of movement that has has a kind of a, a next phase for it um, that moves beyond some of what we see it being on 24-hour news channel debates into something that has a, a lasting power beyond a, f- a few years, starting with the killing of Trayvon Martin? Well, the one thing that they think we have to understand about the Black Lives Matter movement is that it was never it was never a movement that only focused on the police killings of African-American men. It was always a movement that was concerned with a multiplicity of, of, of issues. The movement was, was uh, started, the Black Lives Matter hashtag was started by three African-American uh, women. And um, they are concerned with a number of, of, of issues, uh, race, class, gender, uh, people's uh, sexual preferences and lifestyles. All of those are issues that are involved and, and that, uh, in, in the Black Lives Matter movement. And in that way, the Black Lives Matter movement resembles the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, uh, SNCC movement of the 1960s. And that was a movement that uh, Ella Baker advised the young people in that movement to, to not just focus on reforms, but to look at the entire social system and to uh, to try to to change that entire social system. So it, it's really not just a reform-based movement. It's, it's a radical movement in, in that sense that would be very much consistent with where Martin Luther King was towards the end of his life when he looked at the American social structure and, and uh, surmised that the, the entire thing had to be changed, that we needed to have fundamental systemic change. One of the arguments that is often levied at uh, people from the Black Lives Matter movement is, and this this isn't an argument I'm sure that you would agree with, nor is it an argument that I would agree with, but it's certainly something that people say regularly, which is that by saying any particular group matters more than another group, you are then uh, essentially saying that we should focus our efforts here as opposed to there. Um, maybe, Noel, this comes from the way that we tend to polarize in American society today, which is if if it is for something, it must be against something else. For instance, if you talk about police violence against African-Americans, you must be anti-cop. Or if you talk about Black Lives Matter, you must be in some ways anti-white. Can you talk about how perhaps we we can talk about this in a different way to make some of these things a little bit clear, to not have some of these confusions around language that seem to constantly stem from this? No, we can't do that. Yeah. And let, let me tell you why we can't do yeah. that. It's not just a matter of confusion. Uh, what's happening with language is political, and it involves power. 
And what we're talking about now is racially oppressed people using the language that we want to use, that we feel is necessary. And we're talking about people who are in racially privileged positions listening to our language and listening to our pain. So um, it's not just a matter of tinkering around and getting the right words. For example, um, in the late 1960s, we had cities that were on fire. And President Johnson established a national commission to study the riots, the causes and consequences of those uh, urban rebellions. That, uh, that's an interesting phrase, urban rebellion. Uh, it was a term that African-Americans used, and, and riots was a term that European-Americans were more likely to use. Another example of language conflict. And that commission, which consisted largely of moderate European-Americans, actually came out and said that white racism was at the center of of the nation's uh, racial problems. Uh, why did they say that? They didn't say that. Be- they said that because America was burning, uh, because race relations had changed in such a fundamental way that they could not deny that we had a problem. And, you know, that's happening right now with the Black Lives Matter movement. We had Hillary Clinton now talking about systemic racism in a way that is much more explicit and direct than the Barack Obama has ever talked about it. We have Bernie Sanders, who's talking about institutionalized racism and actually has a racial justice platform uh, at his website. It's the most explicit uh, platform that deals with racism of any presidential campaign in American history. And you're saying that that this very specific language has helped to shape and mold what the presidential candidates are, are, are talking about right now, that essentially we wouldn't have seen this sort of platform from a, a Democratic presidential candidate uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Remember, Bernie Sanders didn't just uh, get religion on this issue. He was he was forced to to use the language by Black Lives Matter activists. And remember the same thing with Hillary Clinton. Um, uh, when Hillary Clinton came up with this notion that all lives matter, she was corrected. No, that's not what we want you to say. We want you to say that black lives matter uh, because not all lives are being snuffed away by the police in in this this horrific uh, fashion. So she was forced to change her language. Uh, Bernie Sanders was forced to change his language. And that's what I call linguistic racial confrontation, Oh, we have to we have to change changes in language comes with changes in race relations. And what is really exciting about this period right now we have is that we have Donald Trump running for president. And so the nation is it's very difficult for people to deny that we have a racial problem right now. When we have a presidential candidate who refers to Mexicans as rapists and wants to keep Muslims out of this country. So. um we are at a period now where things are very, very exciting. We, we are talking about these issues. We're battling with these issues. Uh, and there's a new conversation. But that conversation is all, not going to always be, be pleasant. No, no. And, and I, it's never been pleasant. And I have a lot of these conversations that it's never <laughs> going to be pleasant in the future. But I think the worry that a lot of people would have is if you look at just politics right now, you've got two Democrats, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, who have, I think you quite rightly have analyzed, have been forced to use language that they wouldn't have used in the past and grapple with issues that they haven't previously thought of. And that has made a difference because on that side of the political spectrum, they are both 
courting votes from all sorts of groups that the Republicans seem not to be trying to court right now, and because they are maybe in some ways predisposed to want to listen to those arguments. On on the other hand, you have a whole group of people who hear those same things and in many ways react violently, react very thoughtlessly toward, toward the notion that we have a race problem at all. I mean, as much as it may have animated um, Hillary Clinton into one sort of action, is it possible that it has animated supporters of Donald Trump into another sort of action? Sure. I think that what you have right now is very intense racial conflict. And I am a product of the civil rights movement. I, I grew up in the Jim Crow South. Uh, and I remember the civil rights movement. And the civil rights movement was a very frightening time. But at the same time, things were changing. And I am very optimistic, actually, about what I see today because we have gotten off the dime. I remember, for example, in the 1990s, uh, you couldn't even talk about race, much less racism. I mean, you, you would have students in your class who, who I had one student who, who called me a racist. And I said, why am I a racist? Because you brought this stuff up. I said, I'm a sociologist. I'm supposed to bring this stuff up. So we were in complete denial at the same time when there was a, a very racist war against drugs and, the, 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 uh, and a very big movement towards the mass incarceration of African-Americans, all done in a very colorblind, kind of racially quiet way. I don't want the quiet. I would rather have the noise. I would rather see us off the dime dealing with these issues. America has a clear choice uh, in this presidential election. We're going to see what America's really about. Um, I, I have to ask you, because you mentioned his name earlier, is, what role do you think President Obama has played in either the perpetuation of the types of, of systems we have uh, in talking about race and racism and these issues? Um, has, he, has he moved the needle forward in any way? Uh, have you been disappointed in a black president who, who essentially has not seemingly made these very issues we're talking about right now a part of his, you know, almost eight years in office? He's had some successes, for example, uh, with uh, the Affordable Care Act. But for the most part, I've been very disappointed um, he has been very timid uh, when it comes to dealing with uh, racial issues. Uh, and even when people have shown him a way to to help the African-American and Latino American communities, he has not done so. For example, there was a group of uh, African-American and Latino leaders who met with uh, President Obama uh, when he was dealing with the major economic uh, collapse in this country and so suggested that maybe you should target some of that TARP money to African-Americans and Latino communities. And you don't say, have to say you're targeting it racially. You can, you can say that I'm going to target the money where the greatest poverty is. That would take care of the African-American communities, Latino-American communities, European-Americans in Appalachia and elsewhere. Okay? Mm-hmm. He would not do that. Instead, he gave them a lecture about he is not the president of uh, Af- black America, but he's the president of all America. And instead of his trying to dismantle this very racist uh, system of mass incarceration that we have right now in this country that's driven by the war on poverty, the war on, on, on um, drugs, um, he has been going around lecturing African-American males on, on, on what our prop, uh, proper uh, behavior 
uh, should be, you know, essentially accepting uh, this culture of poverty way of framing things. So uh, although I voted for uh, President Obama t- twice, uh, I have been very disappointed uh, in him. But but where do you think that comes from? I mean, you, 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 you cannot be the first black president of the United States of America without having to grapple with all these same issues yourself, without having to figure out how to talk to your a constituent base that is largely, I mean, look at look at the numbers of African-Americans who voted for President Obama. He, he seemingly understands something about the difference between the African-American condition in America and the majority white condition in America, but yet he seems unable to talk about it, unwilling. I mean, is, is, is the way he treats it uh, a stand-in for the way we all kind of timidly tiptoe around race? Well... Again, the focus of my book is on racial accommodation. Mm-hmm. And Barack Obama has essentially been presenting the African-American community with the argument that, look, you know, I've got to be careful. Of, you know, also, I'm not going to get elected. <laughs> and then people said, well, let him get elected. But, and then when, you know, so don't make waves. And then once he gets reelected, he's going to, that's going to really be the deal. Well, he's gotten reelected. And again, the major issue that African-Americans are concerned about right now is mass incarceration and reform of the criminal justice system. And he has not taken a major lead in that um, issue. Recently, he said that he's, he's in for the Black Lives Matter movement. But as president of the United States, he could be doing a lot uh, more. So I think that in some ways, the presidency of Barack Obama has disempowered African-Americans. We have become quiet. We have become timid. We've been happy to have Barack Obama and Michelle and the girls uh, in the White House. And we have not pushed uh, as hard. And some, uh, some people are really some, – some African-American observers, uh, leaders are suggesting that with the next administration, you're going to see more of an active role of uh, African-Americans in the political process, not just in terms of financially supporting people, voting for them, but actually um, the notion that we should be at the table uh, shaping policies and we should be treated as an important constituent group and not lectured to uh, that uh, uh, this person is not the president of black America. Um, you, you write that language, even if it is provocative, uh, has to be used to address some of these issues. Um, previously in the program, we've talked about the use of, of what people euphemistically call the N-word. Um, we had on Frank Harris, who is a, a professor of journalism at Southern Connecticut State University, and he's also a, a columnist for the Hartford Current. His documentary is called Journey to the Bottom of the N-Word. It was, to me, a fascinating conversation in part because, uh, Noel, as we talk about the the precise language that is needed to get past some of the the problems that we have of racism in America. Here's here's one thing that keeps coming up. We have a euphemism that we all use, including in newspapers. Newspapers wouldn't uh, use a stand-in for a lot of other language that people would find offensive, but this is one that they do. Uh, as a as a white American male, I will say that's just a word I won't even use to make a point with you in a conversation. There is a word that ha- has so much baggage and is so loaded. Is that something we should be using in public in a certain way so as to make some sort of a, a point? Well, I, I think what, what I'm fascinated about is why there's so much interest one way or the other in, in the N-word. Um, I think, again... That that focuses on 
African Americans, uh, and it focuses on the people who are, are really the victims of racial oppression. I, I, I'd like to see more discussion of the um, white racism word and why we can't use that word without um, people putting up their dukes and getting ready to fight. In my white racism class, I end up telling my students that, look, I'm not talking about your mama. Uh, this is not personal. I'm talking about a highly organized system of oppression when I talk about uh, white racism. Now, so the, the, the N-word, whatever, a lot of it, some of this stuff I kind of just don't care about very much. Hmm. And I think that there are ways of, of, of working that. I mean, if, if, if it's important for people to know what the word is, you could put the word in parents, uh, in quotes, excuse me. Um, or maybe sometimes it is appropriate um, to, um, to, to use it. But what really fascinates me is that people can write books about the N-word, and it can become a bestseller, and we can have whole discussions on whether, why young African Americans are using the N-word and things of that sort. And, and that kind of fascinates me um, to no end as to why there's so much focus on that and so little focus on, on white racism. So as we end, I, I, I think I'll ask the, the really important question that I always have when I, whenever I have conversations like this, which is it's very uncomfortable to talk about these issues. It's very uncomfortable to figure out what to say and how to say it so as to both get at the point you're trying to make and also feel like you're not going to offend somebody or maybe offend somebody just enough. It's not supposed to be easy, but I guess I'm just wondering if there is a way to have a conversation that allows for both the real hard language that is needed to move presidential candidates toward a position that you're looking for, but then also allow people who don't have very much power in a little closer by using, if not racially accommodated language, language that allows them to to not feel so incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable when talking about race. Am I making sense? I, I hear you, but I don't think that's the issue for people who are racially oppressed. Um, I'm not uncomfortable talking about these issues. It doesn't make me uncomfortable to talk about these issues. But, but white, people, it, white people are incredibly uncomfortable talking about these issues because, because, they, do, because they don't understand how to talk about it. This is just me projecting but, this on a lot of conversations that I've had with people. But yeah. that's not more important than the fact yeah. that people are being oppressed on a day-to-day -day basis. People can't rent houses. People are being discriminated. And in a job search, people are being shot down and uh, unarmed people are being shot down by the police with, with impunity. Um, you're, the issue is not whether European-Americans feel uncomfortable. European-Americans need to learn to feel uncomfortable and need to learn not to run away, not to be cowardly in, in, in dealing with this problem that uh, they benefit from. So it should not be the position of people who have a foot placed on their neck to look up at the person who benefits from that and say, I hope you're comfortable, and, but I, I, I hope you don't misunderstand me, but would you please take your foot off my neck? 
uh, you, you need to remove that foot, maybe knock that person on their butt by, once you, by you know, lifting their foot up. And then once they realize that something's wrong, maybe then you can have a civil and humane and compassionate conversation. How do we, how do we get to that place, do you, do you think? I mean, not to, not to look into a crystal ball too much, but that's, that's obviously exactly right. Oh, and okay. the question is, how do we get there? Yeah, yeah you, by removing that foot. And and up, upsetting things. But but what by, does that what uh, does by, that look like? Yeah, it looks like the civil rights movement mm-hmm. looked like in the 1960s that resulted in even sociologists who have tended to be very um, racism evasive talking about systemic racism. It it was the civil rights movement that put the language of systemic racism uh, in the larger culture. What I'm what I suggest in my book is that what. Changes the language is changes in race relations and then changes in um, um, the language facilitate further changes in race relations. So basically what I think is, is needed is a movement that will force American society to listen to what it needs to listen to. Mm. Noel Kazanavis, professor of sociology at UConn. His new book is called Conceptualizing Racism, Breaking the Chains of Racially Accommodative Language. Thank you so much for the conversation. It's fascinating. I've enjoyed being here. Thank you for excellent being here. Coming up, author and mediator Mark Gerzon on how we can bridge the partisan divide in America. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, Colin McEnroe will sit in for me. He'll host a brand new edition of The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Hope you can join him. Today, author, consultant, and mediator Mark Gerzon, who's been bringing people together for decades across the political divide. He's helped to design and facilitate bipartisan congressional retreats. He was assigned by the U.N. Development Program to work with countries around election violence. And now he's president of the Mediators Foundation. It's a nonprofit dedicated to incubating projects that promote mutual understanding and the common good. His most recent book is The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. He'll be in town this Friday, April 8th, speaking as part of Leadership Greater Hartford's 40th anniversary celebration. This breakfast forum will be at the Hartford Hilton at 7.30 a.m. We've got more information on our website at WNPR.org. Mark Gerzon, welcome to Where We Live. Good to be with you, John. So if our political system is more partisan than ever, does this have to do with the people of America or does this have to do with the elected representatives uh, in Congress? What, What do you think? Well, I know that the underlying nature of the American people is not as divided, John, as the parties that represent us. Um, we only have two choices, you know, Pepsi and Coke. Um, and when you only have two choices, you know, everybody divides into two camps. And particularly when each of those two camps have a billion dollars to try to tell you how great they are and how horrible the other folks are, it divides the country. So data shows and statistics show very, very clearly that if you take Americans from across the spectrum and bring them together for a deeper conversation, there's far more agreement in America than you'd ever guess from looking at today's paper. So, in part, that has to do with what's happening in Congress. It has to do with the amount of money that gets put into politics. But you just mentioned what you read in today's paper. How much of a problem is the press? Well, the press is a problem, and I've experienced this myself because for 20 years I've done you know, work across the divide, starting when I worked with Congress in the 90s and then doing a lot of retreats for Democrats and Republicans and 
working with state legislatures and other public officials. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very clear to me that the media is not interested in those stories. Uh, the media is much more interested in, in when, when Trump and, and Cruz get into a big fight about their wives. Um, that has a lot of, you know, that has a lot of news play. Uh, whereas when, you know, when the state legislature in Connecticut, um, you know, comes together and passes a bipartisan bill, you know, it, it, it gets a quick, you know, gets a quick news story, but then, you know, the media moves on. So when you organized retreats for Republicans and Democrats at a time when people wanted to co- come together a little bit more, what, what exactly was accomplished? I mean, we, we often wonder about that, about how much uh, people are able to just come together over a round of golf or a game of cards or just sitting around having a drink and, and talking through issues. D- does that really help to bridge some of the divide, just the coming together of people recreationally or, or in some sort of a setting like that? It's one very important ingredient in the cake mix of democracy. Uh, one important ingredient, but I think your point, John, is true. It's, it's just one ingredient. Um, it's the yeast. You know, it's the yeast. Uh, you still need then, you know, the flour and the water and the eggs. And I think the missing ingredient has been the American people, the people listening to your program, um, the, you know, we, the people, because we have to demand that our, our, our politicians work together. And we need to vote for those who actually want to work together. And as you can see in the current, you know, political race, you know, John Kasich, who's clearly the most collaborative of the, of the Republicans, um, tends to come in last. Um, and, you know, it's also been true on the Democratic side. Very, very uh, collaborative Democrats often come in last because they don't have as high ratings. They don't have as high shock value. They don't have as high appeal to the primary voters. So um, I'm really tired of that kind of behavior, and I think the American people are, too. But you say the primary voters, and I think that's a key part of our conversation, which is that everyone knows, and it's been getting worse for years, that in primaries, all candidates appeal to the base. John Kasich can't really get any traction in a a debate amongst Republicans because everyone wants to be running against Barack Obama, running far, far to the right. Meanwhile, if you asked many ordinary Americans, would you like someone in the White House who knows how to work across party lines and knows how to actually bridge divides, they probably like someone like that. Is our primary system part of the problem? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I talk in the United States of America, I talk about four or five structural changes that are extremely important. If we want, you know, the game of politics to be as fair, say, as, you know, the game of NCAA March Madness basketball, for example, at the moment, we don't have fair we don't have clear rules and regulations for politics the way we do for the NCAA finals. We don't have referees who are generally agreed on, and we don't have clearly marked um, you know, basketball courts. We don't have clear ground rules for our politics. So I think if there's any sports fans listening, you can, I can tell you, we, we, if we simply apply the knowledge we have for how to run a fair basketball game or a fair football game to politics, um, we'd, be, we'd be miles ahead of where we are today. And I describe in my book the four or five steps that a lot of citizens are taking to clean up the game of politics, because it's a game right now without referees, without rules, and without you know clear dividing lines. Well, look, I just had Ralph Nader on my program the other day, and he says some of the same things you're saying, but I think he'd make the argument that it is very much like an NCAA tournament in that the people who are making the rules are the soda companies and the beer companies and the people who sponsor a partisan debate on CNN. I mean, this has become entertainment, and the networks and their corporate sponsors are the ones who are saying, who gets to be on Tier 1 of the debate and Tier 2? Who gets to go when? Is it going to be on Saturday night or Tuesday night? I mean, there's so much power in the hands of networks and their corporate sponsors. Is that part of the problem, Mark? 
Absolutely. Corporate, corporate media and, and corporate power is definitely part of the problem. I, and and I, think, I think we have to, however, include the two parties, because uh, the two parties, for example, took over the Presidential Debate Commission from the League of Women Voters. Um, it's not the corporations that control the Presidential Debate Commission. It's the Democratic and Republican parties. So if the, if the Democratic and Republican parties really wanted the debates to be at a higher level, um, if they wanted there to be more participation and, and, and a better use of the media, they could make it happen. But we have two things going on, which is the corporate problem that you're, you're talking about, and then we have the, the party problem. And I think what's important about the United States of America is that while I do talk about the problems we're discussing, John, I also profile 30 or 40 groups that, you know, in communities across the country, including Connecticut, um, are crossing the divide every day. You know, Everyday Democracy is, a, is an organization in Connecticut that's one of the 40 organizations that I profile. And, and the truth is, we, we the people know how to cross the divide. We're doing it every day in state legislatures. We're doing it in communities. We're doing it in churches. We're doing it in city halls. Um, we know how to do it. Um, but the challenge is, how do we get our leaders to practice what we're practicing in our own communities. We're practicing it in our own communities, but it is fair to say that if you look at uh, anybody's Facebook feed in America, we're not doing a, a really great job of it. I mean, so much of the language that we, the people, are trading with each other has become so terribly divisive. We tend to jump on people for their political points of view without listening. Uh, you, you do give some examples in the back of your book about how we can bridge the divide on a personal level, but where do you think it starts? I mean, give us some, give us some how-tos about how to have a better political dialogue, especially in social media. Well, I think the ground rules, I profile in my book three or four sets of ground rules from different organizations, including the ground rules, by the way, that we used when we worked with Congress. Because when we took Congress away from Capitol Hill to Hershey, Pennsylvania, for a weekend, uh, they said to me, you know, Mark, how do you, how do you know that we're going to behave any better in Hershey, Pennsylvania than we do on Capitol Hill? And I said, well, we're only going to behave better if we have different ground rules. So we set ground rules. And I think, John, the starting point is to go back to those ground rules and the ground rules of other organizations like Living Room Conversations or others. And they, they have certain core basic values, which won't surprise any of your listeners. The first one is respect. The second one is, you know, no interrupting, no counterattacks, personal attacks. Um, the, the third is um, fairness. You know, each person gets a fair amount of time to speak. So just take a look at those. Respect. Um, you know, openness to different points of view and, 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 and fairness about how you use of time. That those, are, those are not exactly rocket science, you know. But what has to happen is you have to have officiating. You have to have officiating that's actually strong. And you need to have punishment for people who break the rules. I don't know if you watched the debates, but if you watch them closely, you'll notice that when candidates break the rules, there's absolutely no consequences. Their microphone doesn't get turned off. Their time doesn't get turned off. Nothing happens to them. It's as if, you know, you had a foul in a basketball game, and an you know, egregious foul, uh, and, the, and the refs didn't blow their whistle. Or they blew their whistle and then, you know, didn't give the team, you know, a couple of foul, foul shots. So we have a we, – we really need to decide, do we want to raise the level of the game? That's what we need to decide as a people. We're, we're talking today with uh, Mark Gerzon, whose book is The Reunited States of America, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. He's going to be appearing uh, April 8th, speaking as part of uh, Leadership Greater Hartford's 40th anniversary celebration. It's a breakfast forum at the Hartford uh, Hilton. If you want more information, you can go to our website, wnpr.org slash where we live. Um, so many of those things you're saying are, are so completely sensical. The problem, though, is, Mark, is that politics, much like sports, as you mentioned before, has become about winning and losing. And if you just take it from a purely practical standpoint, 
the ability for politicians to use the media, to use dialogue or debate to try to win a contest is really, in many cases, in their best interest, or at least is in the best interest of the people who they've hired, the political professionals who they've hired to help craft their messages. As long as politics is a zero-sum game in which somebody has to win and somebody else then therefore has to lose, how are we going to get to that that um, more bipartisan um, more congenial kind of conversation you're talking about? Well, I'm going to use a sports analogy here to answer your question, uh, which is that, you know, when the Seahawks and the Broncos play or the Patriots play the Broncos or pick your favorite two teams, when they play, uh, it's a, it's a zero-sum game. You know, one is trying to win and one is trying to lose, or one is trying to win and the other is going to lose, and, and uh, that's going to be the inevitable outcome. But the question is, after the game, is the game of football stronger or weaker? And what I've noticed about NCAA and NFL is that, you know, by and large, um, the games are getting stronger because the officiating is getting cleaner and corruption's getting out of it, the role of money is getting out of it. It's, it's becoming a cleaner, a cleaner practice. And so I don't think winning and losing guarantees that the game of basketball or football is going to start to disintegrate and get lower and go into the gutter. So I think it's really how we win and how we lose. And I'm glad you brought it up because one of the things we say to our kids is it's not whether you win or lose, it's how you play the game. Well, in politics, it's both. It's how, whether you win or lose, and it's also how you play the game. And so I think voters need to demand that candidates they vote for have played the game in a way that raises the level of the game. And what I like about the organization in Hartford, Leadership Greater Hartford, that's hosting me, is that they're one of you know 230 leadership organizations across the country in all the major cities. And they're, member, they're, they're Democrats in Leadership Greater Hartford. They're Republicans. They're independents. And they come together on a regular basis to learn about leadership. And that's what's happening in communities across the country, John, is that there are people coming across the divide to learn about leadership, to run hospitals, to run schools, you know, to make their cities work. And, and I don't see why we as a people can't uh, have the major leagues um, play with the same skill and the same values that the minor leagues play with. And that's something we've heard for years in, in politics, that at the local level, at the town government level, it's much easier for Republicans and Democrats, uh, people who are independent, to get along easily because— well, they've got to fix the problem with the source system. I mean, it's not a matter of who wins and who loses. You've you got to solve a problem. And also it's because you're neighbors, right? You're, you're right next to each other. You may disagree politically, but you still have to deal with each other on a daily basis. A worry many people, though, have, Mark, is that that toxic atmosphere that comes from the top, the big leagues, as you call them, is trickling down. Do you see that? Do you see it trickling down to the local uh, town government level? Absolutely. It is trickling down, but, you know, the founding fathers saw the the states as, you know, laboratories of democracy. So I'm hoping in cities like Hartford and Tallahassee and, and uh, you know, other, other uh, capitals like Ann Arbor and, 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 and that we can start to see, we can start to Lansing, we can start to see state legislatures um, actually experiment with working together. And I don't see why, you know, a, a state like Connecticut and say, look, you know, we've got Democrats, Republicans, and Independents, but what we care about is the state of Connecticut. So while we're going to be, you know, vote Democrat, Republican, or Independent, the fact is we love our state. What can we do to work together, and how can we become a showcase to the country of what's possible? And Connecticut is as good a state as any to try it. Um, I've said the same thing in Michigan and other states, that, you know, Michigan, after it's the crash of the auto industry, um, you know, they were in dire straits, and yet Democrats and Republicans were fighting over the spoils. And I said to them, look, you know, you've got a state here that could become a, a, a beacon of light for the country that shows how a state can come out of the ashes of, you know, a real economic decline and, and move forward. 
So I see a lot of action now on the state level, John, where people are saying, hey, we are all citizens of the state of Connecticut. Let's make it work here and let's overcome our differences. You don't have to play the game in Hartford the way they play it on Capitol Hill. There's no law that says that in the Constitution. So a last thing for you, then, is is looking toward the future, and you write about a new generation of leaders that is needed. Uh, talk about what you think the new generation of leaders really looks like. Is it people who decide to enter the political class and run for public office? What does that look like, and how is it different from the generation of political leaders that you and I have lived through? Uh, it's a great question, John, and I think the clearest answer I can give you is a statistical one, which is that the millennial generation, you know, the under-34s, Almost 60% of the millennials say we're independents. We're not Democrats. We're not Republicans. They refuse to be called a liberal or a conservative. They've grown up in an era when they can, you know, buy the buy the song. They don't have to buy the album. Uh, there's no there's no incentive for them to, to 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 take the party line from the left or the right. And what they're saying is, look, you know, I use my iPad. I use my iPhone. I believe in innovation. I want to solve problems. Uh, show me the best way to solve this problem. You know, somebody starts Uber, they go, oh, that's a better way to get a ride. You know, call Uber. They're very interested in innovation and what I would call sparkling creativity, which is what America's all about. So I think the biggest sign of hope and the biggest difference in the next generation of leaders is that they're not going to be hardcore left and right. They're not going to be hardcore Democrats and Republicans. You're going to see far more independent candidates, far more candidates who say, you know, I happen to be running on the Democratic Party because that's the team. You know, you've got to play on a team to play in the sport. So they'll join the Democratic or Republican Party in most cases. But I think we're going to see a streak of independence and a determination to solve problems. And I think we're also going to see more pairings, pairings of Democrats and Republicans who say, you know, so-and-so is a Republican, I'm a Democrat, but we're working together to solve problem X. And the American people are going to start seeing that, and they're going to go say, hey, I like that pair. And that pair is going to have a, become rising stars in their respective parties. So I think there's a way of breathing new life into this old structure, John. And uh, I, I really appreciate the chance to share with you some of these ideas about how the United States of America are actually here today. They're, they're here today. We can, we can become citizens of the United States of America today. All we have to do is decide we want to do that. Mark Gerzon is an author, a leadership consultant. His book is called The Reunited States of America, uh, How We Can Bridge the Partisan Divide. He's going to be on April 8th, this Friday, at the Leadership Greater Hartford, the 40th anniversary celebration there. It's at the Hartford Hilton. More information on our website, wnpr.org. Mark, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Great being with you, John. Thank you. Where We Live is produced by Katie Talarski with Lydia Brown, Tucker Ives, and Kion Wolf. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us.